Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. As an award-winning science journalist contributing to Scientific American, The New York Times, and Slate, Melinda was regularly asked to investigate and address all types of parenting questions related to everything from potty training to vaccinations to sleeping. As Melinda's own children grew, she had increasing concerns about how to raise children who are kind, considerate, and ethical, the kind of children you actually want to hang out with and maybe might even change the world. In today's conversation, Melinda is going to share her process for writing the book, how she shaped the idea for her book, how she got away with a provocative title, and how she manages to find her voice when research is driving the idea. Welcome, Melinda. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. We're so excited to hear about your journey writing this wonderful book. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell our audience a little bit about how this book came into existence? I know that you're a science and parenting reporter for magazines and newspapers. And so what trends were motivating you to write this book? How did it come into existence? I've been a freelance science writer now for 15 years. And at first I really was focused on, you know, hard science and and trends in science and medicine. And then I had kids 10 years ago, I had my son and I realized, you know, I just had so many questions about how to parent and that Google was, you know, not always that helpful. And I started to recognize that actually science could really help me answer my own parenting questions. And so I started writing a parenting column for Slate. It was a science-based parenting column. And I did that for a number of years. And at first, you know, the questions were kind of like, how do I, you know, make sure I keep my baby alive? Like is swaddling dangerous? And, you know, what, what kinds of milk are the best? And like what, you know, is health focused. And then as my kids got older, I found I had a lot more questions about behavior and, you know, just, uh, just about their development and what, what's the best way to respond to situations with them. For a very long time, I was, I was actually pretty anti-writing a parenting book. I knew I wanted to write a book. I always wanted to write a book, but I, anytime anybody said to me, why don't you write a parenting book? I kind of scoffed. And I, I think honestly, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is it's almost like sexism. There's something about parenting journalism that does not feel as serious or as well-respected as Mm. other kinds of science journalism. And I was really scared of kind of being pigeonholed as like a mommy blogger almost. So I was really resistant to it at first, but then I, you know, I, I felt like there were a lot of things happening in the world. It was about three years ago. You know, I just felt like there was bad behavior kind of <laughs> all around us among people who, you know, were in the, in the public sphere. And I saw that hate crimes were, were going up and I saw that bullying was going up in a lot of schools. And I just started really thinking about my kids and, you know, what, is, what are they learning from this? And how do I make sure that they grow up to be good human beings? And I talked to other parents and I heard them saying the same things like, you know, how do we just, how do we make sure that we're raising good people who are going to fight injustice rather than contributing to it? And it was at that point that I 
recognized, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of guidance on this. There, there certainly wasn't a lot of science-based guidance on this. And I started looking into the research just to see, like, is there research from child development, from parenting literature that can inform how parents interact with their kids and how to shape character and build values. And I found there was actually a ton of research and not much of it had been translated to a lay audience. And so all of that kind of came together. And I I realized, you know, this isn't maybe just a parenting book. This is like a, a book that could do some good in the world. And it felt like just sort of a, an important project for, for the world. And it felt really, it, it felt like it could be helpful for a lot of people. And that was the point where I said, okay, I think I'm, I think I am going to write a parenting book and I want it to be focused on, you know, building a better future generation of, of humans. Yeah, that kind of all came together and that's how I decided to write the book. So you started out researching before you started writing, is that true? And at what point did your thesis for the book kind of come into existence and how often did you have to tweak that thesis to get it to where it was today in the published form? You know, it's really funny. I, so I did do some research, but a lot of it was within the context of writing other articles. So, you know, in my slate columns, I definitely felt a shift about five years in where I started writing more about behavior and I started writing more about character. And, you know, I wrote about like, how do we raise generous kids and, and stuff like that. And so the research, some of it did come from writing other articles and it wasn't just book focused because, you know, it's funny, like the, the idea of the book, the concept of the book actually came to me all of a sudden. I, and, and the title as well, I was out to dinner with my husband. It was our anniversary. This was like three years ago. And I actually, funnily enough, had just written a book proposal for a completely different kind of book, which was <laughs> a very science focused book. And the agents I was, I hadn't signed with an agent yet, but the agents I was talking to, they really weren't all that into the idea. And then I realized I wasn't all that into the idea. And I was kind of sad. And I was just sitting, having dinner with my husband. And I was just like, not feeling good about the world. And out of the blue, I I swear, I just said, maybe I should write a book called how to raise kids who aren't assholes. And that's honestly, like, it just came out of my mouth. I had no idea it was coming out. And my husband and I, I looked at him and he looked at me and he was like, I think that might be your book. And literally the next morning I emailed the agent that I ended up signing with, who I'd been, you know, going back and forth with about this other proposal. And I said, okay, trash that proposal. <laughs> I think I have my book and I'm really excited about it. And let me know what you think. And I have, I even have a working title, but I don't know if it'll, you know, stick, but here's what I'm thinking. And he was like, this is great. How quickly can you write a proposal? Tell me about working with the publisher with that title, because I, I, I think I told you in the email and I've been telling everybody, I've had this laying around the house and every time somebody walks by, they pick it up and they have to actually read the title out loud. And then they're so engaged that they open it up and they actually start reading it, which I think is it's an amazing title if you can get somebody to do that. But was there any pushback from your editor publisher on the title? And how did you kind of advocate for this really provocative, wonderful title? It was a really interesting process because at first, you know, the proposal I put together, I had this as the working title. And I think it got a lot of interest from publishers because of the title. And with my publisher, you know, the the initial reaction was we we love this title, but we definitely need to sort of do some research and see if it's going to work. And so for a while, we just we were moving forward as if this was going to be the title. And then maybe six months before the book was, or maybe like nine months before the book was supposed to come out, my editor said, okay you know, we need to do some research to make sure that this title is not going to work against us in some way, because, you know, we were both, we were all aware that it was provocative. It was catchy. It was funny. 
and there were a lot of good aspects to it. Like you said, like people are not going to forget the title. People are going to pick up the book because it's, it's, it's compelling and provocative. But then we worried, well, are some people going to be turned off by it? And we were worried too about coverage of the book. You know, were there going to be TV stations and radio stations? I mean, newspapers who weren't going to cover the book, maybe wouldn't be willing to consider an excerpt because of the title of the book. And so we started doing research and I started doing research. I actually, it's funny, there's like a small group of parenting writers, all of whom have books with swear words in the title. And I know them and I reached out to them and I said, tell me what it's been like having a swear word in the title of your book. And, you know, what kind of problems did you encounter? Or do you think it was ultimately, you know, did it help you sell more copies? And we had this kind of ongoing conversation and everybody said, I think it definitely didn't, you know, it it held me back from certain outlets. Like the morning shows aren't going to touch books that have swear words in the titles, like, you know, Today Show and whatnot. And they said, you know, the New York Times also wouldn't touch the title of our books, but at the same time, a lot of other places did. And, and, you know, and they, they said it didn't really affect radio. Like radio is willing to work around it. They can't say the word asshole on the radio. They are at least not in, you know, public radio, but they work around it and stuff like that. And then I also reached out actually to the New York Times because I write for them a lot. And I really wanted them to consider an excerpt of the book or at least some kind of coverage because that was you know, it's the, it's the publication I have a relationship with that has the biggest reach. And so that felt important to me. And that was also really interesting because at first the people I talked to, some of my editors, they said, you know, we just don't know. It's really kind of case by case basis where they decide whether to include a swear word in a piece. It can be because somebody really famous was quoted and said some, said a swear word, and then they, they will include it. Or if it's in a book title, it has to be important enough to them to cover the book. Like it, it, it's really decided on a case by case basis. And I said, well, how can I figure out if they would be willing to, <laughs> to, to cover my book? And this was before it was even out. So they hadn't read it. They didn't know whether they liked it, you know, anything like this, but just hypothetically, could we do some, you know, could you ask the standards department? Could you talk to them? And yeah, they basically came back saying, I think, I think we could cover it, but you know, again, we have to like the book. We have to think it's important enough. So I brought all this back to my publisher and I said, you know, ultimately, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. I, but I love the title. And I tried to come up with alternate titles. I really tried. I said, you know, what other word could we use? Like jerks or monsters, how to raise kids who aren't monsters, you know, and nothing really felt right. And, and I think they agreed with that. Like nothing really just captured what I was going for. And, you know, the word asshole has such a specific connotation. And so ultimately we said, well, you know what, let's, let's go with it and let's see what happens and hope for the best. And I'm so glad we did because in the end, the New York Times did end up covering it and they ran an excerpt and now it's in my bio every time I write a story for them, which is amazing because there really haven't been a lot of times that the New York Times has, has used the word assholes in print. And, you know, yeah, I haven't been on morning shows, but that's okay. But I've done a lot of radio and a lot of other places have covered it, I think in part because of the title. So who knows, you know, but I feel good about it. I feel like in the end, it was a good choice. Can you talk about the connotation of the word assholes compared to something like jerk or monster? Can you talk a little bit about (laughs) what you think it conveys? I mean, I think this is a really important conversation because you you do have to be specific in language choice because it does, like you said, elicit a different feeling. It's hard to describe. To me, you know, an asshole is an adult. It's often, uh, I think it, it connotes a male, but I don't think it has to. But to me, it's like a really egotistical, selfish guy, kind of. I mean, but again, it doesn't have to be a guy. 
but it's a certain kind of unpleasant person. Yeah. Who's just like focused on themselves and maybe, and maybe also, you know, a little bit racist, a little bit sexist, you know, really just captured all of these sub traits that to me, I wanted to address in the book and jerks kind of gets it, but jerks is, it's just a little tamer. It's a little more vague, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say, but there's also something about the word asshole that I think parents often humorously use to describe their kids. Like, oh my God, my kids are acting like such assholes today. (laughs) And they don't say jerks. They say assholes. It's something, it's part of like the parenting lexicon in some way. It's part of how a lot of modern parents refer to their kids. And obviously in a very jokey way, we don't really, really think our kids are assholes, but it was several things. It was like the word asshole has a specific connotation and it's a word that parents often use in a humorous way to kind of describe their, their children. So that was, that was why to me, it felt like the right choice. I want to talk (laughs) about the research. So one of the things that we try to get people to do is two things. One is to do research. The second thing is not to, to, to make the book about the research. And I think that's hard, right? Obviously, you want your book to support your research to support the storyline, right? The thesis of your book. But you've done it. You did a great job of, of really having a voice. So first question really about research is what surprised you as you started to dig deeper into the research? Was there a couple nuggets that you uncovered that really helped you? solidify your thesis or maybe make huge progress during some point in the writing? There were certainly a lot of things that surprised me. And I, I would say a lot of the research I uncovered kind of contradicted my own parenting instincts, which I thought was really, really, really interesting and also would make the book more compelling. Because I think, you know, if you're writing a book and you're basically saying stuff that is common sense that any parent is going to know, then why do you need the book, right? Why do you need to buy the book? And why is a friend, you know, why is a parent going to recommend the book to a friend if really everything she read is, or he read is, you know, stuff they already knew. It was complicated because on the one hand, I thought, well, this is not good that so much of what the research supports is counter to a lot of parents' instincts, because that means we have a lot to learn and maybe we're not always doing things in the most constructive way. And that's not great. But at the same time, I knew for the book itself, that this was kind of a good thing because it meant like there's, there's a lot to say and a lot of it's going to be new and and interesting to parents. And so it certainly made me feel like I'm onto something. This is, this is good. But in terms of solidifying my thesis, it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of books in the world. And I do feel like while my book has a lot of the, the chapters have common themes, each chapter is kind of like a standalone thing too where I really was taking one particular sort of sub trait or characteristic or issue and digging into, you know, what does the research say about how best to handle this or how best to prevent this? Or, you know, if it's in the case of racism or sexism. And so there's not so much a single thesis, in my opinion, that runs through the book, but there's a lot of, in the end, there are a lot of themes. There are a lot of things like one of them being, you know, it's better to talk to your kids about things that you think you shouldn't talk to your kids about than to not talk to your kids about them. Sorry, that was a really roundabout way of saying it. But in every area that I looked into, you know, it's, it's better to talk about these very taboo nuanced topics than to avoid them. And so that kept coming up as a theme, but that only came about like after I'd really done all the research and, and I tried to pull that out in the introductions and stuff, but 
it was an interesting book because in a way each chapter was like a standalone thing. Yeah. Well, it's almost like I, I always use this example of Stephen Covey's, you know, that 90 year old classic or 40, whatever it is, seven habits of highly effective people, even though those stand, those chapters are standalone, there is a meta, you know, a meta idea that makes that hang together, even though they're all standalone. And I think there are, there certainly were themes that in the end I realized, oh, wow, this really, there's advice that applies to almost every realm that you look at in parenting that you can pull out and, and take away. So as you're, you, you've, you've compiled all this research, tell us about your process of when do you actually start writing? Do you, do you write after you feel like, oh, I've got this, I've got everything, I've got this chapter outlined. I've got all the, you know, buckets of research that I need. Or do you kind of write, do a little more research, write a little bit more? How, how, what's your process like? Well, it did vary a little bit by chapter, but usually, so I had about a year to write the book. And so I, I kind of broke that down into, I have about a month for each chapter. And mostly I would do just research, research, research for three weeks or two and a half weeks. And then that last week I would really be writing. But I did sometimes find as I was writing, you know, I would identify holes in my reporting or questions that I realized, you know, were going to arise in readers' minds that I hadn't yet gotten answers to that I wanted to try to address. So there was definitely still some reporting that would happen after I started writing. And that is one of the big things I've learned as a journalist is that it's always better to start writing early (laughs) so that you have that time when you identify the holes to then fill it in and do some more reporting. But still, you know, I did do the bulk of research first and I used Scrivener. I had so many studies. So first I would just try to find any studies I could find on whatever topic it was. So on, you know, sexism, I would go to the, you know, the the different um, databases of, of studies and use different keywords and just try to find everything I could. And I would look at the title. And if it looked like it was maybe remotely relevant, I would download it. So I teach at NYU and I have, I have, it's amazing. I have access to, you know, full text of all sorts of journals. So I would just download, you know, sometimes hundreds of studies. And then after that, go through each one and read a little bit more and say, is this actually relevant? And then I put it into little subfolders. And then for about a week, I would just sit and like read studies all day and highlight and make notes and pull things out. And make another little document with, you know, here's something I might want to mention from this study. And here's something important from this study. And then after I had kind of compiled this big research document of things that seemed important and relevant, I would kind of try to outline a little bit and then start writing. So that was for almost every chapter, I would say that was my, that was my process. I already said this to you, but what struck me so much about the research is that it's your narrative that you're driving and it doesn't feel like you're being interrupted by the research when you're when you're a reader which is really really wonderful and how how do you do that and is that how you maintain your voice are you really aware of that and i also have a question about how you treated your in notes because it's very very different you don't have like the superscript like one next to the research and so if you could talk a little bit about that also so you know i think in terms of keeping my voice Having 15 years of science journalism experience really, really helped me there because part of my job has been to read, you know, for 15 years to read tons of studies, to pull out, you know, the nuggets of wisdom and then rework it and reframe it in a way that the average person will find interesting and, and relevant. 
And so I think a lot of it is just practice, right? I've just done, done this over and over again. I've been edited so many times and, and that has helped, you know, by great editors who helped me realize, you know, no, this isn't written in the most conversational way. Can you rework it? So I've just, you know, been working on that skill for a long, long time. And for whatever reason that I've found that parenting writing, it's easier for me to be voicey when I'm writing about parenting, because I think it's just so close to my own identity and who I am. I've just had so much fun writing, for instance, the slate columns that I wrote where I really was (laughs) trying to make it funny and interesting and relevant and And that just came easier to me than say doing that with something about like molecular biology. So I think, yeah, part of it's just a subject matter. So it was just a little bit easier for me to, I mean, because it's so relevant to me and it was so, it's like my day-to-day life was informed by what I was reading and vice versa. And so I was able to kind of write it in a way that I felt like it was very personal and, and very, and also would be very relatable to others. But yeah, practice and experience really, really helped. And then the notes process, you know, I think I have just, I've read and I did some research on what different types of science books and parenting books did. I really, really wanted to make sure that any reader of the book could look up a study that I mentioned in the book, but I didn't want there to be a lot of footnotes in the actual text. I wanted it to read, you know, smoothly and be an easy read and not kind of look scary and look technical. But I, yeah, but it was really important that I would have a very substantial note section where anybody could turn to the back and find the sentence where I mentioned a particular study and then find the citation for that study so they could read more about it. Because that's always been very, very important to me in reading books, there's, you know, often when I'm reading books, I want to go and I want to look up that study and I want to say, you know, what else did this study find? Or did this real, this study really say what they just said it said and double check it. And I've really wanted to give that to my readers as well. That that just, just felt really important, especially as a science journalist, the book was really grounded in the science. I wanted it to be very, very grounded in science. That's, you know, that was kind of the whole thing for me. So that felt important. How do you make sure you're not cherry picking quotes that support your idea, but the overall thesis maybe of their big idea doesn't support your idea. There's this tendency you take out the parts of research that, you know, support what you're saying or, or raise thought that you want to bring up, but you're not giving the whole of the other person's argument. How do you, how do you balance that? I guess is my question. And because it's really tempting to just take out one provocative quote and not give the context from which it comes. I mean, it is, it's very challenging because we all experience confirmation bias. You know, we, we all want to, we're going to believe things that agree with what we already think. And that's just part of human nature. And I think part of it is awareness that this is how we, this is how our brains work. And so I'm constantly trying to push against that and really say, okay, is is this really what the research says? Is this really what this expert is saying? In a way though, I knew that if anything was kind of surprising or anti what I believed that that might actually be a good thing. So there was also this, even though we had this confirmation bias, there was kind of in my brain, like an incentive to, to be surprised. Like it, it, it was more interesting when it was surprising and it went against what I believed. And so I think that helped me kind of balance out like, wow, if I read something that, that went against what I've been doing for the last 10 years, sure, it, that was hard to read. And I hate thinking, oh my gosh, I haven't been parenting in maybe the most constructive way, my own kids. But at the same time, I knew, well, that's going to be very helpful for people because I bet I'm not the only one who didn't realize this. And so I want to pull that out. You know, in terms of including context, I mean, it is 
very, very hard. But I, I, I found that when I, because I really tried to survey the research literature as broadly as I could and make sure I was reading kind of everything I could find on a particular topic. And where there was disagreement in the field, you know, I did try to point out, like, we don't know the best way to do this or, you know, experts aren't sure about why. But a lot of times I did find consensus, um, you know, in the research on talking to kids about race, like there is a lot, everything really kind of aligns. And so that made me feel like, well, everything I'm reading really says this. So I feel comfortable saying this, you know, even if it's a little bit simplified, I feel like I'm getting the gist of what the research, you know, really really says. One of the things that you mentioned, it may have been in an email to Melissa, I can't remember, but you were surprised a little bit about how little editing happened, developmental editing, or maybe just line editing happened in the, in the book publishing process. And so tell me a little bit about your, the emotion of, and then your experience with working with a book publisher. It was not what I expected it was more hands-off than I expected. But I think it's important though to, for me to point out that my editor, she, at the very beginning of the process, before I started researching and writing, she had an idea for a general formula for my chapters. And she said, you know, this I think could work really well, but let me know what you think. And, and I'll, I'll share the formula. But I think that because she scaffolded it in that way from the very beginning, that is one of the reasons that there was so little editing after I wrote the chapters, because I really, it, it made it so much easier to have this formula for my chapters that I essentially followed in every single chapter. So she said, you know, first, I think it would be great to have an anecdote. So let's say a lot of my chapters were written in the sort of negative, like how to raise kids who aren't X, like aren't sexist, aren't racist. And she said, okay, so let's say you start each chapter with an example of a kid who is exhibiting the bad behavior that the whole chapter is going to be about preventing, right? So think a story of a kid saying or doing something sexist or racist. And then after that, some, you know, sort of an, a bunch of, you know, background context and essay, like a few thousand words that talk about, you know, why, you know, whatever, whatever felt really important to include, you know, why is this issue so counterintuitive or why, why is, you know, why do we get this wrong? Or why do kids develop these tendencies, you know, whatever felt appropriate. And then to include, you know, bullet pointed or numbered suggestions, tips, you know, strategies, basically. And in and then after the bullet points to talk about, you know, how to actually implement the strategy. And that's, and that's where the service really comes in. So she said, you know, how does that sound to you? Do you think that would work? And I thought, oh, my gosh, that is, that is amazing. That's perfect. I that that makes so much sense to me. And I think that would work really well. And so I had that scaffolding from the very beginning and that made it so much easier to report, to write, to think about how I was going to organize everything as I was reporting. And obviously as I was writing. And then after I, I turned in my chapters though, I, I still was very surprised by how little editing there was. She would maybe there would be like one word she would take out every five pages. (laughs) There was no substantial changes to like, I mean, and I think there were a couple of paragraphs where she's like this paragraph you probably don't need, but in the entire book, like that was, that was how little there was. And it was terrifying to me because I, you know, I didn't know, is this because it's it's really that good or are you just so busy that you don't have time to edit it? And, you know, is it actually really bad? And so what I did, because I was just, nervous. I mean, this is my first book. I don't know what I'm doing is I did send 
key chapters to friends of mine who are also journalists. And my husband is also an editor. So he read the whole book. And I said, please just tell me what doesn't make sense. Tell me what I'm missing. Tell me, you know, whatever you want to do. I just, I need some feedback. And they, and some of my friends did have some substantial suggestions for several of the chapters. And I was so grateful for that. And I think it made them a lot better, but it was so hands-off and I knew it was going to be, people had told me it's more hands-off than magazine editing, but I didn't quite realize the extent to which it was. <laughs> I didn't expect the extent to which it was. And, and I think, and uh, Michelle, um, my editor is Michelle Howry. I realized I hadn't said her name. She, I think that, and that's scaffolding, as I said, the really helping me figure out how to organize each chapter. If I hadn't had that, I think my draft probably would have come in a total mess, you know? And then, you know, even with the light edits that she gave me, I did substantially revise a bunch of chapters, just having, once the chapters had sort of sat there for a few months and I reread them, I read them and thought, oh gosh, I, I didn't explain this well, or I need to connect these two dots better. And, you know, I, I certainly did revise. I'm not saying I didn't like the, that the first draft was what you're, you know, what's yeah. published. That certainly there was revisions happening. What was it like the moment you heard it was going to print and you held it in your hand for the first time? Can you tell about <laughs> that? <laughs> oh my gosh. It was such an emotional experience. I remember I was on vacation and I, and my publisher had said, we've sent the, a box of the books to your house. And and I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I, I almost wanted to come home early from vacation. And there they were like just sitting on my porch when we got home and I opened them and I just burst into tears. It's just, it's unreal because I don't know. I mean, I'd been wanting to write a book for so long and I had all these ideas about what it meant to write a book and how hard it was going to be. And I mean, and it was, but just then realizing, oh my gosh, I did it. Like I did this. I have a book. It was just the most emotional and amazing feeling. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. Related to that, you always wanted to write a book and you knew it was going to be hard. A lot of the writers with whom we work, they're trying to balance like a job with writing a book, like in the evenings or in the early mornings or on the weekends. Was your sole purpose in that year that you were doing research and writing to write a book or were you also doing freelance writing at the same time? And how did you find that balance? What was your writing life like? When did you actually do the writing and any tips for people who are in that writing phase, not to put it off to the end. And we work with people, you know, they just don't put in the daily discipline and it gets really crunched at the end. I think I'm very fortunate that I am a freelancer, so I can, to some degree, control my workload. You know, I'm, I feel for the writers who have, you know, full-time staff writer or staff editor job and then have to write at night. I, I can't imagine doing that. So I was able to I, I did still do some, some freelancing while I, in the year that I was working on the book, but I, I decreased my workload by probably 50% in order to, you know, I did, I did want and need income coming in other than my advance, but I was able to do a lot less of it. And so I, I was writing during normal business hours and doing research during normal business hours. I remember though, I did hire an after school nanny for that year and actually the pandemic kind of interrupted that, but that was one of the best decisions I made. And now I'm continuing to, <laughs> to have a nanny because I got so much more done in those hours from three to six. You know, I used to stop working at three when the kids would come home from school and having those extra three hours every day where I would be just really working on the book that really, really, really helped. But I definitely, I, I mean, I've never been a person, I'm pretty self-disciplined in the sense that, you know, I if I know I need to write, I will sit down and I will usually write and it's not always great. And I have to go back and do a lot of stuff, but I've always been kind of self-motivated in that way. But even so, you know, it actually sitting down sometimes and starting to write those chapters when you know, wow, this is like, this is a 
book chapter. It was still, it was, it was a little intimidating, yeah. but once I started though, once I started and I started getting into it, then it was much easier, but it was like that blank page, you know, <laughs> there is something so emotionally daunting about a book chapter rather than a column or an essay, right? I mean, it, it feels so much bigger. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And the introduction to the book, which my editor suggested that I write first, because she said, sometimes we say you should write it at the end. She said, I really think you should write the introduction first. And I was like, oh my God, like, how do I do that? Because this is, I have to introduce this whole book that I haven't even reported yet, really. And obviously I went back and changed things after I'd written the book, but um, that was one, I mean, having that blank page and thinking this is, <laughs> I have to write my introduction. That was terrifying. What was her thinking behind that? That's really interesting because we usually tell people also to do it at the end when, once you know what the book has become, but what did you learn from doing it up front? And what was her reasoning behind urging you to do it first? You know, I don't remember if she actually gave me reasons. I think she, she sort of said, like, I think this would work well for this book for you to work on it first. And I don't, I don't know. I think though, part of it was that I knew that the introduction was really going to be about why we need this, like why I wanted to write the book and why this is, it's why it's a pressing issue to consider, you know, raising good human beings and, and why is this necessary? And, and so, and that I kind of already knew, you know, I knew what, inspired me to want to write this book. And that was, and in a way I was living through that time at, in the, you know, at that moment. So maybe it was that she didn't want me to go back a year later when maybe the world wouldn't see, seem so terrible or it wouldn't seem like there were that many assholes around and, and maybe not feel that kind of like passionate, you know, uh, we need to do something about this feeling. Maybe that was it that she thought, let's take advantage of the fact that you're feeling this and, you know, argue why we need to, to write this book, to have this book. Yeah, it was really fresh. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Considering you came in with this new book idea that crystallized in this conversation with your husband at dinner. So yeah, I bet you're right about that. Can you tell us, this will probably be our last question for you today, but can you tell us about the promotion of your book and what has surprised you about that? What has worked well? What hasn't worked well? what you would do differently, maybe around the launch of the book, anything that you can share with our audience would be so helpful. I found the months leading up to the launch very difficult because I, I really didn't know what I should be doing. And I, and I know that now I know my publicists were working so hard, but, but I kind of like, didn't understand what was happening behind the scenes. And I remember thinking like, should, should I be pitching podcasts? Are you doing that? And they would say, Oh, we're doing this. But you know, I just didn't, I didn't always have the the details that I wanted, you know, the, to know exactly like concretely what was happening. And that made me very anxious because I wasn't sure any, I'm like, is anything actually happening? Like it's obviously my first book and I just didn't know how the process worked. So I remember being just terrified that not enough was going on to promote the book and that I needed to be doing more, but I didn't know what. And then I, but I was ultimately just incredibly happy. I mean, they worked so hard and they were, they were doing so much. It was just, I think it was hard for them to explain exactly, I don't know exactly what was going on. You know, one thing that has surprised me too, is that I kind of expected, okay, there's going to be maybe like a flurry of interest and coverage for about a month. And then there's going to be like nothing else. And I've been surprised, pleasantly surprised that, you know, I'm still talking about the book and I'm, you know, still going on podcasts and there's still interest in, and, you know, there's different like waves of where different kind of groups of people hear about it or different. And, and it goes through these very interesting, like ups and downs where it gets like a lot of interest for a month. And then it kind of goes quiet and then it gets another, a lot of interest. And 
it's been more sustained than I expected. And I'm very, very happy for that. Cause I certainly, I didn't want the book to be one of those books that, you know, everybody forgets about after a month. I was hoping it would have a long shelf life and be interesting to parents, but I just wasn't sure. So I have been very, very pleasantly surprised to that. It, and, and, but also having to sort of be flexible about the fact that I, I need to spend more time doing promotion than I thought even six months later. And what does that look like for you personally? Every week I'm doing a couple of podcasts. There's also, I didn't really anticipate, you know, a lot of speaking opportunities. I mean, I'm very excited for them, but that's something new for me. I didn't do a lot of, of professional speaking before the, I wrote the book. And there've been a lot of interest from, you know, schools and parent groups and even like camping, you know, camp organizations, stuff like that. Even some companies who have parenting employee groups that, you know, they want me to come and talk about the book. So I'm, I feel like every week I'm kind of working on, you know, negotiating another speaking opportunity. Yeah. And then a lot of blurb requests. I wasn't really prepared for how many, once you have a book out, how many times other writers are going to come to you and say, will you read my book and blurb it? And so that's also been like, how do I fit that into my schedule? I can't, you know, that's a lot of books, but it's been really fun too. So it's a very different life. I feel like now as a freelancer, I mean, yes, I'm still writing articles. I'm still doing the things I was doing, but there's all these other layers of things sort of woven into my life as well, which has been really fun, but definitely an adjustment. Really quick. When you talk about speaking engagements, do you ask to bring copies to sell or is there a minimum amount of books that you ask that the organization purchase in order for you to speak or do you just bring the books along and say, hey, if you're interested in the book, I have some copies? Or how do you use those, to, those opportunities to promote your book? Yeah, well, the problem has been most of them have been virtual. I've only done one in person, although there's another one coming up. And sometimes it, it really depends on, you know, sometimes if like, for instance, I mean, I, I treat this as, as part of my job. And so I'm not speaking for free. But if, if an organization doesn't really have, um, you know, uh, much in the way of being able to pay me, I will sometimes say, okay, well, if you can't pay me to speak, then what about buying books for everyone who's attending? And we'll try to sort of negotiate it that way. But I don't, I don't, I haven't yet at least like required the purchase of a book in order to do a talk. But that is something that I, yeah, it's in my head and certainly for more in-person things, I have to sort of figure that out. I think it's a little tricky though, from what I understand, if in order to get like a bookstore to come and bring the books, you know, you really have to be able to guarantee you're going to sell at least a hundred books or, you know, there's just different logistics you kind of have to figure out. Has this triggered another idea for a book or have you said, man, that's the last time I'm doing a book? I definitely want to write another book. I've really enjoyed this process, but I have no idea what that book is going to be yet. I've had people say you need to write a book about not raising asshole teenagers, <laughs> like one for old, you know, older kids, but I don't have teens yet. So I feel like I can't quite do that. But yeah, I do want to write a book. I just am not there in terms of what that should be. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a delightful conversation. Before we sign off though, Dave and I want to share our episode. Each of us have one and I'll go first, Dave. So this one is cousin, not to be confused with your biological cousin. It's C-O-Z-E-N. It is, it, I didn't, I always wanted to say cousin whenever I said it, but it actually is pronounced like cousin and it means to cheat, deceive, or trick. So I came up with a stupid little sentence. So it would be in context. 
As you shivered at the top of the trail, you realized your cousin cousined you when she said it was going to be cold hiking. <laughs> it wasn't going to be cold hiking. So there you go. My cousin That's great. <laughs> All right. What a great word. I know that I, word. Yeah. I don't think I've actually heard it. Yeah. I, I'm going to say that I've never heard that word. You haven't. I've seen it written, but uh, you know, the thing when you read is you don't know how to pronounce it. So I was happy to actually learn that. You, it sounds like cousin. So now I will never forget that word, probably. What about you, Dave? What's your word of the episode? So I'm going to use, I, I will set forth one that is is common, but every so often, just like the word desultory, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to say that word. And, and so this word, I know how to say, but I just wanted to make sure I knew what it was. So it's churlish. So mm-hmm. Obviously, that's perfect for our topic today, right? right? So, uh, yeah, how, to, how, how much are of churlish children? Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> exactly. Probably not the best book title, but so it's just this idea of being rude in a mean spirited and surly way. I have a 13 year old, and she has some what should I say, quasi friends or that were uh, in the neighborhood that became churlish at once they hit about 12. And suddenly they became mean girls. But uh, anyway, so churlish. I just, I thought ah, I need to review that word again. So that's why it's my word of the episode. Do you have any, Melinda, that you like to use that our audience may not be aware of? I can like introduce a, a concept, a word from my book that I use a sure. ton that people often don't know, which is theory of mind, which is the ability for a person to take another person's perspective to basically put themselves in another person's shoes. And I write about it a lot in the book because theory of mind is kind of the foundation for a lot of good, you know, kind, generous, helpful behavior. You have to have this theory of mind skill and it develops kind of later on in childhood. And sometimes you have to sort of help it along. So that's a word that I love that maybe not a lot of people know. Thank you, Melinda, again, for being with us. I hope this has really long legs and you continue to see these rises of interest and really delightful to have you and have you share about your writing process with our readers. I know listeners are going to learn so much. Thank you. I love talking about this. So thanks so much for for having me. All right, Dave, I think that that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. (laughs) 